edition of the Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. On today's show, I've got Dennis Simsek. Dennis is a certified NACBT life coach and NLP master practitioner. He helps individuals and groups see where the obstacles in their lives are and guide mentors them to reach their goals and full potential. And not forgetting, he's also the founder and host of The Anxiety Guy, a top-ranked self-help podcast where he shares his knowledge and experience on the causes of anxiety, as well as the best options for people going through these life challenges. So welcome onto the show, Dennis. Thank you very much, James. I'm honored to be here, and I hope we can create some value for your listeners today. It's my pleasure, and thanks for coming on. So before we delve into today's episode, Dennis, can we talk about, obviously, what was the catalyst for you wanting to obviously go into um, working with anxiety? The thing is, is um, we have to go back a little bit to my days as, as a child and as a rising tennis player and trying to be a professional tennis player growing up, there was a lot of anxiety around me. Uh, my father, for instance, was very hard on me and he suffered from an anxiety disorder. His father suffered from an anxiety disorder. So I was surrounded by intentions that were clearly directed towards you have to accomplish something in your life in order for you to, to, to sleep well and to feel good about yourself. And because this was the case, I, I went day by day in my life thinking that, you know what, life is a struggle. Life is always going to be a struggle. Everything is uphill. You got to work hard for this. You got to work hard for that. Um, and I never truly grasped the idea of relaxation or calmness or peace or love or gratitude or any of these things because I was shooting for the next thing, you know, hitting 500 forehands a day and then missing one and then having your dad yell at you is kind of ridiculous in a way. But um, my, my passion growing up was always based around trying to help other people with their problems. So with that side of me that always wanted to contribute and having anxiety growing up and into my 20s and such, I started, in fact, developing health anxiety, which is hypochondria. So it was a combination of making a mountain out of a molehill and having generalized anxiety, but at the same time, being very, very sensitive as far as sensations in my body went and then having panic attacks after that and such. So after suffering from that for six years and then overcoming it in three months through CBT and NLP, as well as Buddhism practices, um, I said, you know what, there has to be a reason for this. My higher up, my higher self, I'm being guided. I've got to contribute towards helping other people because I've suffered. And that's basically where it started. It started with the idea that I've gone through something here. And how can I use this suffering to, in fact, help other people? Because anxiety for me was the best and the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But if we go back to like your tennis days, obviously there's this issue of the pushy parent. Do you think it kind of instilled you 
to kind of loathe the sport in a, in a sense. To dislike the sport? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I Growing up, I didn't really know. I didn't have any options. I didn't have an option to say, yes, I'm passionate about this. Yes, I like this. Yes, I love this or I don't like it. It was brought upon me as it is for many kids out there um, with parents having dreams for this and that for their child. And so I never took the time or had the voice because of how um, intimidating my dad was in this arena. So I didn't have, I had no options. And then when my parents separated at around 16, 17, I finally came up with the conclusion that, you know what, I never really was enjoying what I was doing because I was being forced to, to, to go into it. So at that point in my life, I started to go in other directions. I started to play other sports. I started to become more crafty, more artsy, whatever it is, um, and started to find peace in my life. So there was a, a moment, there was some moments there between 16 and 25 where everything was quite free flowing. But to answer the question, I mean, I, you know, I never had, it was a blur. My childhood was a complete blur. You know, going from the age of three when I started playing tennis, Dennis, you're going to play Wimbledon. You're going to be top 10 in the world. You're going to make lots of money. I'm going to sit, you know, on the sidelines and watching your grand slams. And I said, Dad, you know, I never really, you know, I never questioned it, right? Because once my dad had something in his mind, that's how it was going to be. And neither my mom or his friends or his parents or me was going to change that. So it was a very difficult emotional household. But now you're a practitioner. Do you see that and, and uh, quite evident in young people to today, obviously with having parents like that, what are kind of some of the skills that you could help imp- give them to implement to maybe not get in that kind of vicious cycle of what anxiety can bring? You know, the truth is, is that with the kids that are, you know, for me as a parent, and I, I have a seven-year-old myself, I've been able to say and reframe the whole experience, first of all, with my dad. I said, you know what? He's not a horrible person, okay? He's not this or that. He was doing the best he could with the information that he had. And the way I looked at that was that, you know what? Um, His parents couldn't teach him what they don't know, right? So in that regard, I couldn't continue beating him up and continue looking in the past and saying, what a crappy childhood I had. I had to start reframing it and seeing it in a different light so I could feel better and move forward. But today, as you know, me having a seven-year-old, I come from a place of being an observer more than being the dictator or the person that, you know, because with men, a lot of times, and, and I, people that I deal with, men, women, Women are the emotional ones. Men are the ones that are the ones that feel the need to gain control, right? And that's control over the household in a lot of ways. I deal with a lot of people that go through this. So you have to come from a place of being an observer. And when you're an observer, you're going to pick up on certain traits and characteristics and passions that the child has. For instance, my kid loves, you know, selling cards right now. He's in he's in the phase of Pokemon and this and that and sports cards and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, and so now he's interested as well as watching t- um, TV shows such as Shark Tank. You know, when you look at Shark Tank, you're seeing these entrepreneurs, you're seeing these business people. So right away, I can tell that he's very passionate about solving problems, creating things in his life, you know, cause and effect, you know, this sort of stuff. So I can see where he's going right now. And the best thing I can do is just say, you know what, I'm going to help you do this. And he loves it. And now you're a team. So I, you know, when I see parents out there, the best thing you can do is be an observer. Okay. And just observing the traits and the passions that the kids have and then pushing them in that direction, not pushing them, but guiding them in that direction so that, you know, they can start to solve problems on their own and make mistakes on their own because there truly is no such thing as failure. There's only feedback, right? And because there's only feedback, you've got to let the kid make mistakes on his own. You've got to let the kid go do the things he's passionate about. But then on the flip side of that, Dennis, do you, do you think that obviously the parents that are pushy, in some instances, they're living, you could say their expectations of themselves when they're younger through their child? Now, the parents that are pushy, um, you're saying to be to, uh, can you rephrase that one more time? It would be, I would see it, and I've seen it in the past with coaches like that, that mm-hmm. obviously they've not achieved to the heights that maybe like, right. like your story attests to that their parents wanted for them. So right. they obviously live their dreams through their child. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that's a huge point. That's a, an, a humongous point because, you know, there is a component there where here I have another, I have another chance. I have a second chance at this. I think my dad, who was trying to be a football professional that never made it, wanted the limelight. He wanted this. He wanted the attention. He wanted the money. He wanted the travels and this and that. And not so much for him, but he cared for me so much that he said, you know what? And he always told me, he said, you know what? The best lifestyle is to be an athlete. This, you know, because of his, if you want to call it failures, the way he looked at things, because of this and me growing up and seeing that I've got a talent in sports, to push me in that direction was the best thing that he knew. He had a very tunnel vision kind of way of looking at life. He was very narrow. You know, he never pushed me in school. He never said, you know what, you got to have good grades. You got to be entrepreneur-like. You got to learn coding or this and that. He never said those things. He was very one way. And you know what? The other thing is that when you have someone like this, and, and for me, I never had a choice to do anything different. You do, in fact, develop such characteristics that, like we discussed earlier, that you can develop into other areas of your life, such as discipline, such as determination, you know, such as the willingness to be open-minded and problem-solve, you know, because in tennis, for instance, you've always got to go back and forth, change your strategies, change technically, you know, all this sort of stuff. So there are fantastic things that I learned as I grew up and as my dad pushed me in the sport. But the problem was, you know, I just wasn't completely passionate about it myself. And because that was the case, there was a ceiling as far as what I was going to achieve. I was never going to go that far because my heart wasn't completely in it. Right. 
Mm-hmm. But with, with you having that, gla- well, you could say that glass ceiling, does that bring an element of anxiety in itself because you're obviously limiting your capabilities and probably the long-term game because you you could possibly have this element of doubt within yourself? I mean, absolutely. I, this The whole journey itself for me was... It was it was it was such a confusing thing because as I was growing up, I I realized my my grandpa passed away, then my grandma passed away, and then people were passing away, and I was looking at this and going, you know what? Time is such an essential thing. I mean, as a kid growing up, you wouldn't really say, you know, you, you don't really put it into a perspective where I've only got a certain amount of time. You don't know, right? You're just living life in the moment, which is fantastic. Um, but you know, the idea of, I've got only a certain amount of time now caused some friction and some inner conflict within me where I was doing something I wasn't truly passionate about at the same time I was wasting time and I could have put that time into something I was passionate about. But at the same time I had someone that didn't let me do that. So in that whole regard, you can see how much anxiety was being built internally, right? It was just mm-hmm. this inner conflict and I want to do different things and I want to experience different things, but I can't and so on. And then there was freedom at the age of 16 and 17 where it said, you know what, here's an opportunity for me. And, and I learned a lot between the ages of 16 and 24. And then my health anxiety started to come into play panic disorder and stuff. And that dictated the next six years of my life, which I believe um, was the reason that my higher up or God or whatever it is, uh, my God wanted me to experience that so I could give back fully. And now, you know, at the age of 36, 37, I can use that suffering and the things I learned to be able to contribute to other people and such. And that's why you know, the Anxiety Guy podcast is doing as well as, as it is right now. But then it's also, do, do you not think, obviously, on reflection now, possibly, and it's not trying to put words into your mouth, that if you were able to do the things you did from the age of 16 to 25 younger, do you think you might have achieved better results in that, in that field? I think if I started with the things that I was passionate about and the you know naturally moving towards you know the person I wanted to actually become at an at a younger age I would have developed those skill sets a lot quicker I believe um, but you know taking nothing away from the experience of growing up that way because there is like I mentioned, a lot of traits that I gained that now I apply to, to my own online business and, and other aspects of my life. Like we mentioned, motivation, determination, you know, the ability to problem solve and such. These are things that you can't really learn in school. So in that regard, it was fantastic. My only problem with my growing up situation was that I didn't have any options. And all I wanted as a kid was to go play in the playground with kids, other kids. I had no social life. Um, I was itching for, you know, 
there was a, I love my parents so very much. I wanted to keep them happy. I wanted to do good things for them and have good achievements and stuff. But I was itching for other things. I was itching for communication, love and connection. I was itching for, you know, a different way of feeling significant and, and contribution and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was a two way street. It really was. It was keeping people happy. It was, you know, contemplating the idea of, is this for me or not? And then it was the idea of what am I missing out on? But it, it, listening to you speak there, Dennis, you could say you were kind of thrust into a kind of a professional sport slash business environment at a young age. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's, oh, it's, it's the, it's, I can't speak. It's mm-hmm. hard enough as an adult to be in that, in that environment at times, let alone as a child. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, if I told you that because you're dealing with someone here where, you know, in my father's eyes, I mean, he, it was like, it's either my way or the highway kind of thing. And, um, and it was so emotionally, disruptive for the family's energy that, you know, my dad could walk into a room and automatically without saying a word, you could feel his vibration. You could feel his frequency, you know, because most of communication is nonverbal. And because of this, you could really feel the negativity that was coming with his personality and the way he approached life. And when you have someone like this surrounding you each and every day, um, for your entire life at such a young age, you start to believe and create some core beliefs within you that say, you know what, maybe this is the way you should be looking at life. Maybe this is the way, maybe, maybe violence does equal love. You know, maybe pushing someone into something and not giving them any options is the only way. There was lots of core beliefs and stuff that I had to go back and reframe and see it in a different light so that I could move on with my life. You know, it was, and again, but the good thing is, like you mentioned, is because of those experiences, if you're ever caught up later on in life with someone like that, now that you've reframed stuff and overcome those core beliefs that are deep in the unconscious, you can deal with that stuff like it's nothing. You know, there's people that come up to me now that have the same type of energy and, um, and I'm able to just kind of go through it and get them to a softer place and to see for them to, to help them see the world in the big picture rather than in one narrow focus because their parents taught them to be that way. So absolutely right. I mean, you're looking at it in a way where the childhood was difficult, but moving forward in the business world and whatever other world that's you know, difficult to deal with as far as people and the environment goes. I mean, it, it was, it was a plus in that way. It was a plus. But what would your, your saying be? Cause obviously there's that psychological term that you are the, oh, let's see if I can get this right. You are the re, like resonance of the five people around you. Mm-hmm. Obviously people outside of your family, when they are negative in that way, you can get rid of them. But what would you say if that was one of those people happened to be, a family member, you can't really discard them because at a later date, you might have to call upon them. Absolutely. I mean, 
that's where the whole idea of, you know, who's my role model when I'm growing up? My role models are my parents. Everybody's role model is their parents. Their role model is, is their teacher. Their role model is their, you know, their best friend, that sort of stuff. Um, and you can't completely disregard these people, but you can start learning ways of um, how to deal with these people and learning ways to be flexible cognitively and behaviorally so that these people can start seeing the world in a different way. Um, there was nothing healthy about that environment that I was growing up in. There was nothing healthy about it. Um, it, was, it wasn't healthy for him. You know, the amount of pills that he had in his cabinet, right? The amount of techniques he tried and all the, that sort of stuff and the supplements and everything like that. It was, it, it was like that for a very long time, but we can't disregard those people, absolutely. And you can't change somebody that doesn't want to be changed. That's the thing is you're going about life and you could tell my dad all sorts of stuff, but because things have been processed so much over and over and over again, he's created so much repetition around these beliefs, so much emotion around these beliefs that a part of him says, this is the only way to live life. And you can't, you know, consciously change somebody that way. In my experience, that some, you know, someone who tries to fight any kind of change, you can only do it through a trancic state or a hypnosis, you know, uh, methodology. So in that way, Again, the environment was horrible. The environment wasn't healthy. Um, I learned lots of lessons from the environment. I understood myself better growing up. Um, I finally got to a place where I could do some of the things I wanted to do and follow some of the passions I wanted to. But I don't urge any parent to take a, you know, my way or the highway kind of viewpoint because it's a completely emotionally, mentally, spiritually physically unhealthy way to live for a child. Um, and the best thing you can do is start developing more flexibility, right? More flexibility in how you see things. Even one tiny thing that you can change throughout the day, you know, you're going to find that that will transfer over to other things and transfer over to other things. So, you know, that's, you know, it's a two way street. It really was. But then, Dennis, you could say, obviously, that, that quote with it's my way or the highway is generally a parent's way of dishing out a punishment. It's not, in most cases, it's not always like that day to day. But obviously, like you attested, that's probably, with your circumstances, that's how it is. But for the majority of people, it probably, it's because the, the more cases being adolescents stepped out of line. So it's like, well you need to come back in line or it's obviously there's the door. Mm -hmm. But I mean, with that said, there's also the, the complete opposite of what my parents, my dad, um, you know, the way he approached life, the, the complete opposite of that. What I saw that as well. I saw people, parents that didn't care at all, you know, didn't have any guidance for the kid. Um, and, and that extreme is dangerous as well. Right. There has to be a balance. There has to be a medium. There has to be this approach to life where you go, you know, um, every kid's going to have to learn lessons on his own for the most part. Um, 
and and you cannot control your kid 24 hours a day. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for anybody in the environment. It's not healthy, healthy for the kid. That whole idea needs to just go out the door. You know, if the kid is completely passionate about a sport and you see that passion within him and you're not forcing that kid to go train, you're not forcing that kid to go and do the exercises and learn the techniques and stuff, then fantastic, right? Then guide that kid, push that kid forward. Absolutely. Because he wants it. It's coming from himself, you know, and that's the, the first signal. It's, it's passion. If someone is passionate about something, you know what? Is they'll be passionate about don't let them give up on something right so easily let them understand that trials and tribulations are a part of that whole process don't let them give up on it but if they begin completely losing their passion over something that's again a warning signal right because i mean overall this is kind of the the ebb and flow of, of living um but again i was never completely passionate about what i was doing and the reason for that was I wanted to be an all sport kind of guy. I was a very athletic person. I loved soccer. Uh, fo- you call it football. I call it soccer. <laughs> okay. I was passionate about basketball. I was passionate about swimming and all that sort of stuff. I wanted to do multiple different things, which in fact would have helped my tennis much more. Um, you know, but I was never allowed to do that. So there has to, again, I'm going back to this again and again, there has to be a certain balance when you're raising your kid. Um, And we have to see the opposite side of things too. I mean, you cannot allow a child to just be on their iPad all day and just, you know, not care and play video games and all that sort of stuff, which I don't know about the UK, but in the Western world, it's getting worse and worse. You know, when you see a rest, uh, a family sitting in the restaurant and you got a kid on an iPad rather than making communication and, and talking about their day and such, you know, that's another extreme where there's no guidance whatsoever, right? And that's kind of the direction we're going with technology in a lot of ways. But then if we go down that route, Dennis, in terms of the technology aspect, would you think that it's going to develop more anxiety with people because they're going to have, they don't have the communication skills that were commonplace, well, we'll say well, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and obviously that's more from say a public speaking perspective. They won't know how to deal with it. And obviously they're going to have that anxiety as a result. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you, I lived in Singapore for a number of years in Singapore, everybody's on their phone, tablet or laptop. When I was on the train, I was taking, I was taking photos. I was taking videos of these people sending it back to, to my family and they were going, everybody's looking this way. And number one, the amount of stimulation that you're getting by constantly looking at your device, especially those small devices at the brightness that they were doing, you know, most of them were just basically wasting time. Most of them weren't working on their business. Most of them were playing, you know, games. They were playing games that, and these aren't the kind of trivia games that are good for your mind, right? These are just stimulating games. So, you know, anxiety in today's world is an epidemic. It's, it's getting worse. It's getting much, much worse. And the reason it's getting worse is that the system that's set in today's world preaches anxiety. 
You know, in a lot of ways, when you're going to school and you're spending six, seven hours a day on that stuff, and yes, you're learning certain things, but for the majority of things that you're learning, you'll never use in your real life. And then you go home and do another three, four hours of homework. Kids are, I mean, what was the quote? Uh, Kids today have the same amount of anxiety levels as mental um, ward patients in the 1950s or something like that. And you know, the system preaches this and then you go off to university and a lot of kids that I talk to that are in university don't really know what they want to do and they're stuck in, in tons of debt and they're stuck in doing something that they're not truly knowing that they're passionate about yet and then they go out into the workforce and they look for power and control and where do I belong and then social interactions and stuff. Um, and then in the workforce, you're shooting for the top And then you're getting that mortgage and then you're raising a family and then you're going into retirement and then you're dying. The system is created for us to have anxiety and it never brings out our creative intelligence. It never preaches, you know, a deeper meaning of life. It never preaches get in touch with nature. You know, it just preaches on the idea of do more, be more, right? The to-do lists. And because of this, anxiety is is going to happen. It's automatic. It's inevitable. But then you go into the system that, you know, as far as how they treat anxiety and now you're dealing with medications and this is all, this is my personal opinion. Now you're dealing with medications that are going to open up a whole new batch of worms for you, a whole new batch of problems because now you're dealing with the toxicity. Now you're dealing with the addictiveness of these benzos. And this becomes an even bigger problem to try to get off of, right? And then you go into therapy. And therapy preaches the idea of coping and managing anxiety. And now you have these people that you look up to that say, you know what, it's in your genes. It's a part of your lifestyle, this and that. And here are some techniques that are going to help you. And they never get to the root of the problem. They never get to the core beliefs that are creating these symptoms. They only deal with the symptom. And because of that, people are always stuck thinking that, you know what, I'm going to have to live with this forever. And that's where, you know, me and you come into play and we start to go, well, maybe there's a different way to see things. Maybe there's a different way to function in life. Maybe there's a different focus that we can have. And maybe there are certain tool sets out there that can help me with my mindsets and therefore can also help me with certain skill sets that are going to help me move forward. And this voice is simply not loud enough, right? Because the majority of what you hear out there is the suffering, is the pessimism, is the negativity, is the idea that I've tried everything. I hope things will change, right? So that's the world we're living in now, man. But then if you look at it from, say, the youngsters and maybe don't focus on like the now and say go back a couple of years and you talk about you and I, mm-hmm. I wasn't anxious when I was a child. You, you, mm-hmm. you don't have fear when you, you, you're, a, you're a child. It's mm-hmm. obviously, it, it comes a time when you become into your adulthood, you always have those uh, fears and obviously apprehensions and doubt set in. Mm-hmm. which you didn't have as a child. So you, when you bring up that example, people have got, it, the ones that go to school now have got the same capacity of what somebody did in the 1950s. I think that, that's quite horrifying. Mm-hmm. Totally horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Because 
I mean, the we're very, very suggestible because in today's lifestyle, people would rather remember than to try to think themselves through problems. It's like the emotional mind is so triggered and wired that people don't realize or ever gain the skill sets to say, you know what, I can think my way through things. And this is where CBT and NLP comes into play where it says, you know, you don't have to believe that a thought is in fact reality. You know, when we think about cognitive fusion where people see a thought and take it at face value and say, just because I'm thinking something, that's reality, you know, this is a very dangerous place to live or a feeling. I feel anxiety, therefore I am anxiety, right? And people start to create these identities within them. The biggest problem in today's world is that people see themselves a certain way, but they don't really pinpoint the idea that they're only doing things in a certain way. There's a big difference between what you're doing and who you are, right? I'm partaking in anxious behaviors compared to I am anxiety. And people in today's world see themselves as anxious people, fragile, sensitized people. And because they see themselves in this way, their entire reality and their life experience is based around the limit. There's only so much that you can experience. There's only so much that you can do. There's only so much you can say because your identity is based around fear. If you take that away and say, hey, you're just thinking anxious things or you're just behaving anxiously. You know, when you think about it and you go, I have a body or I am a body. When you think about those two statements, one of them you own and one of them is just something that you have or something that you're doing. So we have to make sure that we separate the idea of what we're doing and who we are because this is the main component. As soon as you come from a place of, I'm just thinking anxiously or in, the, in a moment or a certain environment, I'm behaving anxiously, that's something that you can change. But if you identify and connect your entire being on anxiety, it's not something that's easily changeable, right? But then also, Dennis, would you not agree that the way people think uh, obviously, it's two different things as you attest to. Uh, obviously, using you are the body and then I am the body. Do you think it comes down to obviously people kind of disenfranchise themselves from saying, well, this thought I've got in the back of my head is a different entity from myself entirely? But I think it comes back to yes, it is a part of you and you have to accept that, yeah. but it's probably going to the root cause and questioning what I'm actually thinking at this moment in time in this kind of negative perception and probably perspective, is it actually true and question is it, it's, it's, it might be factual in this moment in time, but in the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. it probably isn't, it's not the case. You got it. You absolutely got it. I mean, we live our lives, you know, most people, the majority of people live their lives in a way where they're just trying to get by the day. You know, it's like I wake up in the morning 
And what do I have to do to survive this day? What do I have to do to survive my boss? What do I have to do to get through the day? Whereas most people never take the time to create their lives. They never take the time to see that they have options in life, to see that, you know what, I'm passionate about something. What if I start an online business about that or start a blog about it or a podcast about it or something like that? And maybe that could lead to more financial freedom or time freedom or whatever it is that we want internally want more of. But, you know, this idea of people would rather die than to think is so, so very true. Because in my world, because people that come up to me don't understand the power that they have in a certain anxious situation. They don't realize that when you consciously, with enough repetition and emotion, when you consciously start identifying where the core belief started and how you're reacting in that moment, you can begin to change the patterns that you're currently running. But that change for a lot of people equals pain. And because change equals pain for a lot of people, they would rather default to pre-programmed conditioning or what they're currently doing because there's a certain amount of expectancy there. You know, I'm living my life okay. You know, I'm going to the bar at night. I'm having a couple of drinks with friends and stuff. I enjoy that. I'm, I'm okay with my life. I'm maintaining this. And if I think through things and if I try to make my life better, then that's painful because that's going to take time and that's going to take effort and that's going to take a certain willingness and desire that I really don't want to be, you know, caught up in right now. Right. That's kind of the attitude right now, because and we have to change that. We have to change that to say, you know what, what is thinking through your problems? What is thinking and reframing your past experiences? What is this going to give you? And when we start to think about the pleasure states that changing our behaviors and changing the way we think is going to give us. Now we've got the drive. Now we've got the motivation to start moving in that direction. Right. And we're not thinking about the effort so much. We're thinking about what the effort is going to give us. Me and you, for instance, right? Anything that we want to achieve, we already have the outcome in mind. We have the goal in mind. This is what I want to feel like. This is what I want to be. This is where I want to be. And because of that, we, because of the traits that we've developed as athletes, we can say, well, I know where I want to go. Now, what baby steps do I need to take every single day in order to get there? And when I get there, what am I going to hear? What am I going to feel? What am I going to see? And all that sort of stuff. So when you think about the pleasure that you're going to get from the change you're going to create, that's the motivation. Rather than thinking about the effort that you have to put in to change your thought patterns, to change your behaviors, to, you know, to do all that sort of stuff. But then you could say also, Dennis, that they, they're not willing to change, but being in, in your comfort zone, staying in the same place and being happy, in the, so to speak, in the life that you're, you're living is not a good thing either because you're, you're, you're very much pessimistic in your outcome in life. Okay, yeah, you, you think you're, in a, you're happy where you are, but you're not really. So it's like, well, you, you're thinking by implementing a change, it's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. but where you are right now, you're not happy with either. So it's from an emotional standpoint, 
it's, it's exactly the same. You're in the exact same place and state of mind. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, people are stationary, you know, they're because they don't know what they're capable of, right? They don't know what they're capable of. Me and you, you know, growing up as athletes, we've been in touch with certain feelings and emotions that are so, you know, so incredible that we want more of that, right? We, we want more of that feeling. We want more of that significance. We want more of that growth, that contribution. And since people have never raised the standard of their lives and expected more from themselves, they don't know what they're capable of achieving. All they see is their own, their parents and their parents and so on. And it's about the nine to five. It's about go, go, to, go to your work. It's about get in the rat race. It's about, you know, get caught up in trying to do more, get caught up in this and that. It's about maintain the lifestyle. And then when this happens, what do people usually do? They move towards temporary pleasures, you know, the, the couple pints at night or, you know, the bag of chips or, you know, whatever. And that becomes the very thing that they look forward to, right? And it's very short lasting. It doesn't last. It's not a sense of, you get no sense of growth in this world. But when people start to model other people and start to say, you know what, my God, you know, um, look at these people, look at, look at James, look at, look at these people that have achieved so much, you know, and, and what sort of internal processes do they have? How would they think in these situations? Look at how they act. Look at their posture. Look at their breathing patterns. You know, look at how they deal with people. Look how calm they are. The best thing you can do, you know, to get started is to begin to find one person in, in, in your life or out there as an influencer and say, you know what, how have they achieved what they've been able to achieve, right? I may not want to be a tennis player or a, or a world-class athlete, but I do want to have the sense of progress and moving forward like they have. So how open-minded are they? How do they see themselves? How do they see other people? And you're going to find that when you start to model other people, when you start to pick up on hunches and, and things that they're going through and how they deal with situations, you start to go, my God, I never saw things in that way, right? But you got to put in the work. You got to take some action, right? I mean, as me and you know very well, you know, doing affirmations all day long and then imagining something happening without taking any form of action leads to you, you know, waiting by the telephone for a call and that call never happening. You know, there's got to be a sense of I've got to do, right? I've got to do and I've got to do it consistently if I want change to happen. It's the truth. Well, I think Dennis is probably the easiest. Well, we, we kind of knocked social media and things like that earlier in the episode but it's probably the easiest time in life to be able to do, to be, well, grab the, grab the ball by the horn. Mm. You can engage with influencers very, very easily now, be it Twitter, Facebook, you, you name it. it it's, it's, uh, you, well, it's that easy to ask a question, which, well, we'll say probably a decade ago was impossible. Absolutely. I mean, people are using social media in a way where it's still hurting them. 
when in fact they could be using social media to, to get to a place in their lives they're never, they've never been before. There would be no chance of me being able to connect with you, an influencer, if it wasn't for Twitter, right? There would be no chance. I mean, how would I be able to connect with you, you know, and, and grow this relationship and connect at a higher level? They will, there would be no chance. I'm using social media in a way where it's helping me help other people and, and help my business and the brand and whatever it is. But, you know, going on Facebook and spending time on news feeds and seeing how other people are living their lives and then connecting it to your own life and seeing how crappy you're living your life and such is such a toxic way to live. And that's the majority of people today. They go on Twitter. And when I go on Twitter, you know, anxiety is like a fad. It's like, when you look up hashtags related to anxiety, oh, you know, I had anxiety today, you know, ha, ha, ha kind of thing, you know, oh, it's just a daily everything, you know, check out my anxiety now and you'll see pictures and videos and this and that, right? It's, and then next thing you know, they're actually stuck in a situation where it's a disorder and then they go, well, what, how did I get here? You know, and it, you're absolutely right. You know, social media today is the best and worst things that have ever happened, right? Well, do you think from a from a negative standpoint? I know, I know, we probably shouldn't go down the negative route so much, but do you think it's because people look at it and try and compare themselves to oh, this notion of perfection, which it, it, I think I think our industry and people like the, with them with in relation to mindset are probably trying to trying to get teach people to get rid of it. There's no such thing as perfection because I think, I think from a sporting sense, you want to attain perfection, but the bar always moves. Mm-hmm. Good point. I mean, you're talking about perfection and it's absolutely true. And the thing is, is the more people try to be perfect and to portray this life that they're living you know, you're noticing with perfection, it's a lot about pleasing people. It's a lot about, you know, what people will think about me. It rarely ever comes from a place of their higher selves, their inner selves, their, you know, um, their own being. It's always, and we live in a world where people have health anxiety. I'll give you an example, because they're scared of what judgments are going to be placed on them when they go into certain environments like a grocery store or the mall or a restaurant. And all of a sudden you'll see a health anxiety sufferer, someone who has anxiety, uh, GAD, and you notice that they're sweating. Okay. And then when someone starts to sweat automatically, they start to connect that to what people will think about them, if their relationship will stay as strong, if they'll be accepted. And this whole idea of being accepted is the very thing that contributes to so much anxiety in today's world. And what if we gave up the idea of, you know, and I sweat, you know, look, I'm sweating right now. And if I was sitting with people around me right now, I couldn't care less of whether or not those people saw me, you know, sweating a little bit or not, for example, or some people biting their nails or something like that, certain, you know, things that they do. But so much of the anxiety is about what people will think about you if something happens, if you say the wrong thing, if you do the wrong thing, if you react wrongly. And 
when we come from a place of saying the only person I have to be better than, the only motivation I should have in my life is to be better than the person I was yesterday. And better meaning um, coming from a more calmer place, a more open-minded place, a place where I've got options, a place where I see myself and create self-love, you know, a place of complete acceptance, mindfulness, all that sort of stuff. Am I growing as a person day by day? Or am I trying to please other people? Am I living my life based around what other people will think and say about me? Or am I, in fact, moving in a direction where I'm improving, right, for myself, not for my parents, not for other people, for myself? And when you come from a place like this, the, the, the comments and the reactions and the behaviors of other people don't mean anything because the people that will stick around in your life are the people that will contribute to your life in a more meaningful way. Okay. And the people that leave you are there because of materialistic needs and, you know, and their insecurities as well play a huge part. And this is where we have to come from. You know, if I, I have a handful of great friends and that's really all I need right at this point back in the day when I had anxiety, I felt the need to be accepted by everybody. And as soon as I got criticized, it was like, you know, a volcano erupted. I was like, my God, I'm, I'm not doing a good job at living. You know, I've got it, you know, and there was this sensitivity. People live like that every single day. The photos that you see on Facebook, you know, a lot of people will, will take the selfie, you know, there's that selfie and with the friends around them and, you know, 30 seconds after that selfie, that looks like they're incredibly, they're enjoying their lives. They'll go back to the same problems that they were dealing with in the morning, Right. And they'll go back to, to beating themselves up and the world up, you know. So don't believe in selfies. Don't believe in what you're seeing out there as far as pictures and what people are going through. Yeah, the vacation might be looking incredible in that moment, but trust me, there's more stress in that person than there is pleasure. Well, that the, the, the vacation and like holidays, normally a respite from somebody and what they're doing to, on their day-to-day um, life, it's the what would you call it? Like the escapism. Mm. Mm. Totally. But then you, you did raise a good point there, Dennis, in terms of it's, you shouldn't really care what other people think. I think even, even my listeners on the show would think I was very much an extroverted person. And in all reality, I'm not. My family is very much the opposite. We're very much introverted. I think because of say my business being in the fitness industry, I have had to be, had, have, I can't say it. I have had to become an extrovert because that's the only way to survive. So I, 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 I'm, I think on on the flip side of that, um, and I don't know if it's a family trait or not. Mm. We're very much if we're, I don't know anywhere in the street, may it be I don't know going somewhere, you will have random people come up to us and speak to us. And I think when I was younger. I would ask my, be it my mom, my grandmother, say, why is this random? But do you know this person? Why is this random person mm-hmm. speaking to you? And mm-hmm. then what, now it happens to me. Mm. You're thinking, well, I probably looked at it from a different perspective. It's like, well, what value can that person bring to me by talking to them? It's not going to, it's not going to hurt me speaking to them. It mm-hmm. might actually add something to them. And I think 
well, this has been a few months back, somebody did, mm-hmm. and they were kind of a bit apologetic and say, do you mind that I'm speaking to you? Mm-hmm. No, the train's delayed. <laughs> we'll have a conversation. I've got nothing better to do, so why not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up, what were, what were the main things that we were taught? We were taught, don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers. So we grew up not talking to strangers. When in fact, you know, yes, parents were fear-based. Yes, they were trying to keep us safe and all that sort of stuff. Don't talk to strangers. We took that in in our 20s, 30s, 40s. We, you know, a lot of people that don't dive deep and say, you know what? Well, and you see that in today's world where, you know, in Asia, I'm not, not going to generalize all of Asia, actually. I'm going to go just in Singapore. I'm, you know, I like creating conversations. I see myself as as a mild, calm guy, but at times I want to, you know, converse with other people, see what's going on. And I would try to create conversations with people, you know, and just, you know, just, Hey, what you reading over there? Or, you know, that's a nice book. I've read that before, whatever. Hey, nice shoes. And in Singapore, it was, it was like, it's a threat. It's a threat. It's like, you don't go and talk to somebody that you don't know. You know, that's the kind of attitude over there. And then it's, it's all, you know, when I'm in Vancouver here, it's quite similar where don't talk to strangers, right? And you're in the, the tube and you're going for a walk and all of a sudden, you know, a guy wants to talk to a pretty girl and all of a sudden it's this idea of being on the offense and women don't like it or, you know, it's just this idea that when we were kids and when we were mingling with other kids, look how playful we were. Look how open we were. You know, my seven year old goes to the playground and he makes, you know, 10 friends in a matter of 30 minutes. You know, that's the way we're meant to be. If you look at kids, there's a lot that you can learn just by observing them in playground environments or in, you know, in sporting environments and team sports and stuff, you know, just noticing that I've, I've learned so much from a seven-year-old that, you know, lessons that I never would have gained anywhere else. Things such as being open, mindfulness, and, and embracing variety in your life instead of making life so secure. Um, but again, this idea that when podcasts such as yours and mine come out, it starts to give people options more than anything. It gives people options on how they see themselves. It gives people options on how they communicate with other people, how they can run their business, how worrying doesn't equal success, how anxiety doesn't equal success. Because a lot of anxiety in today's world as well is a certain pairing. People would rather stick to their anxiety and unconsciously hang on to it because they've kept their husband or wife around for many, many years. And the pairing is anxiety equals stronger relationships. And then you go and work with someone that has anxiety and they fight at some level to keep their anxiety. You know, I've had that tons of times where they got the skill sets, the mindsets, everything like that. But Dennis, I just can't move forward because there's a a tight grip there. There's a pairing. There is my business is successful because I worry all the time and I have anxiety all the time and therefore I'm making this much money. Well, who wants to get rid of that? Right? So 
Oh yeah, but it, that's that, that's probably too uh, too evil. It's better too evil because yeah, nobody wants to get rid of the money, no but you don't, you don't want the anxiety that goes with it. Tough place to be, right? Tough place to be, and and uh, you know you'll you'll and you'll see certain people out there that preach things like hustle and work harder and stuff like that, which is fantastic. But what comes with that is is constant stimulation and constant, you know, go, go, go. And when it's constant go, 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 and you're constantly being stimulated and your emotions are running wild, at some point you're going to be emotionally depleted. And when you're emotionally depleted, to get back on the horse becomes more difficult. So the idea of, you know, the connection between my business being successful and me stressing and worrying about my business, that pairing, you know, when you start to say, well, less worry and less anxiety, in fact, creates the same, if not better quality of work or my business or whatever it is, when you start to create a new pairing and then start to build evidence around, hey, you know, the less I worry and the less anxiety I have, I'm still creating the same results I had, if not better. So now all I have to do is just keep building evidence around that. And therefore, my mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical health improve. And it gets better in the meantime. You don't want to be the richest person in the, in the graveyard, okay, for people out there. You know, work hard, hustle, blah, blah, blah. If that's, you know, your number one priority and your relationships are dying and your wife hates you and your kids hate you and you got no friends, you got no social life, you haven't taken one moment to take a bath and give back to yourself, then what's the point of all that, that success? That's a good point in terms of that because it, well, I think at times I think anxiety and success is always going to be a detriment to something else. So it's, 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 are you willing to sacrifice the other things that you would say were important in your life. Mm. Interesting. You know, with anxiety, it's, it's interesting because you have to give up certain things in your life in order to overcome anxiety. And a lot of people are not willing to give up those toxic friends or give up that certain lifestyle or give up the bag of chips or give up, um, you know, the nine to five or whatever it is. You know, there's certain patterns that you're running that's contributing to your anxiety. A lot of people say, Dennis, I have anxiety out of the blue. Nothing is out of the blue, right? I mean, just because you're not consciously aware of something in the outside world doesn't mean it's not affecting you, right? And that's the power that we're talking about as far as your unconscious mind goes. It's constantly scanning. And if you see a blue painting on the side, that reminds you of the panic attack you had six months ago, that exact blue painting, and then you become anxious and you don't know why. It's about what you do in that moment. It's, a, it's not about having the anxiety. That's the truth. It's about how you deal with the emotions and the, the interpretation that your amygdala caused that creates that fight or flight response. It's what you think, what you do, how you react in that moment, that's the important part with anxiety. It's not about, you know, I have anxiety, I always have anxiety, I always will, this and that. What are you doing in that moment? 
Okay. And then what do you need to give up in your life in order to start moving forward? Right. But I mean, with all this, it, it, it starts with a decision and people are too scared to make that decision. I'm too scared to make the decision of overcoming anxiety because my therapist or my doctor said, I'm going to have to live with this forever. I'm going to cope with it. I'm going to manage it. You know, there's a big difference between managing anxiety and eliminating it from your life. So, you know, when we're talking about anxiety and when we're talking about moving forward in your life, understand that you're going to have to pay a price. What that price is spending more time with your kids. That price is giving up the garbage foods that you're eating, giving up, you know, the beers, giving up that social time sometimes and spending some time on self-development, something like that. Re listening to your podcasts, you know, this sort of stuff. And a lot of people are not willing to do that because of the pleasure states it creates for a temporary amount of time. But then Dennis, do you not think it's the people aren't willing to look at why they want to do something? It's actually that, and actually that's the root cause and most, uh, more so probably within fitness industry, people are looking at the end result as in, as opposed to looking at the process and seeing, well, you need to do this first hmm. to get that end result. Do you think it's because they haven't looked, delved deep enough and looked at their why as, as to that is some of the reason why they can't overcome certain circumstances. Interesting. Totally. You know, there's a certain formula that I have when it comes to this resistance, you know, I want something, but I'm not willing to do what it takes or whatever it is, that resistance that you feel. And the first thing is the D is the dissatisfaction, right? It's about being incredibly dissatisfied with how you're living your life. You know, the, fa the family, you know, the amount of money you're making, you know, the way you feel every day. You've got to be completely dissatisfied with how you're living in order for that decision to be made, in order for that change to occur. V is the vision. You, like, like you mentioned, you have to create a vision in your life because your inner GPS system, your mind, if you don't create a vision for your life and the direction you want your life to go, then it's going to keep you where you currently are brooding over you can be as dissatisfied as you want i'm dissatisfied i'm tired of living this way i'm at the point of no return but you haven't created what you want how you want to feel what you want to see what you want to hear you know what sort of experiences you want in your life you have to create a vision you know and this is where i like vision boards vision boards are fantastic because you know even if you don't look at them if you don't really consciously pay attention to them and they're in your bedroom and you wake up to it every single day, your unconscious is scanning the room. Oh, what's that on the room, right? Whoa, there's a million dollar bill on there. Interesting. Well, let's <laughs> investigate a bit more, right? Or whatever you want to manifest. So you have to have a vision for your life. And then F is your first action every morning, okay? First action every morning is when I wake up every single morning, what kind of attitude do I have? What do I need to do to move my life forward? Because in the first 30 minutes of when you wake up, you are incredibly suggestible, right? You are suggestible. So if you're meditating and you're creating affirmations and you're telling yourself these things and you're feeling the emotions, your unconscious is going to work hard in order for that stuff to manifest. But if you're telling yourself how crap your day is going to be, it's going to be difficult. 
Okay, you have to wake up every single morning with a certain amount of positive mental expectancy for the day. You know, what, and the best thing I do every single day when I wake up is, what am I excited about today? Wake up with those words. What am I excited about today? And then in that first 30 minutes, do something that your future self is going to help you, is, is going to be, is going to be proud of you for. Okay. And, and that's the truth. When you put dissatisfaction, vision, and first action every morning into play, you can say goodbye to resistance, right? As long as it's consistent. Would it also, Dennis, would, at the end of the day, would you look to reflect on how the day has gone and look at the pros and cons of it and then obviously use that as a tool to move a step further for the next day? You got it. You absolutely got it. I mean, with a lot of people I work with one-on-one, um, the most important tool is what I call your breakthrough journal, which at the end of the day, okay, you have to pinpoint the things that you're proud of from the day, okay? I felt anxiety, but I didn't allow my thinking, my, my emotional mind to take over. I started thinking myself through the situation. Put that in your breakthrough journal. Today, I woke up in the morning, and I did a couple of power poses, and I held them for two minutes, you know, or whatever. I, I did imagination exercises, any kind of tool for thought restructuring, put that in the breakthrough journal. And a lot of people don't realize that when they're starting to create a change, they're starting from kindergarten. You know, you're going into kindergarten again. You know, when we went into kindergarten, it was like, I can't wait for to meet those kids. I can't wait to meet my new teacher and to learn new things. People go, well, what do you mean breakthrough? It was just, I just did one exercise, you know, that, and, and a part of you says that's nothing to be proud of. If you see yourself from your current identity state, if you see yourself from a sufferer's point of view and the way you've been living, that breakthrough is not a breakthrough. It's just something you did. But if you see yourself from a person who's progressing, someone who's a student of life now, a student of anxiety, a student of what they want to achieve, now, okay, now you're coming from a place of being newborn. You're starting off with a blank slate. Every night before you go to bed, you contribute to your breakthrough journal. Every little thing. You're in the grocery store, you felt some anxiety. You rode the wave of anxiety. You accepted the symptoms. You got the apples, the oranges, everything that you needed. You got into the checkout. You didn't try to run away. Okay. You didn't try to eliminate the feelings, but you rolled with the feelings. Success. Put that in the breakthrough journal. So you mentioned something incredibly important, and that's just being aware of the things that are contributing to your progress, right? Of becoming a new person. But then if we touch upon like the kindergarten element, do you think the people that don't see that as progress, obviously they're being pessimistic because obviously at that age, if you've learned something new, it's a new skill. So it's, it is a progression. So I think you need to be, look at it probably from that perspective, obviously look at it through the eyes of yourself as a youngster and being that age again, mm-hmm. you've, you've, um, overcome something that you've not been able to do before. So it's, it's looking at it from a positive uh, essence because 
it's it's probably because you're looking at it through your eyes as an adult, mm-hmm. you think it's a, mon- a mundane task. It's not really anything of significance mm-hmm. because, okay, it's something you probably do, well, you may not even do net to this day because it's a mundane t- task and it's irrelevant, but back then it probably would be more significant. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing is when you go from being a sufferer and you're dissatisfied with your life and you've created a vision, now you're a student, right? Now the next stage is you're a student. Now as you're a student, there's going to be a whole batch of new experiences. You know, you need to see yourself and see the world from new lenses, right? New lenses. Every experience that you have from that moment on is a learning opportunity, okay? I did something that I'm proud of. If you come from a place of being a student, if you come from a place of, well, I'm 55 years old, what do you mean? I've already learned everything in my life. You know, I know everything and this and that. You come from an egotistical part of your mind, then you know what? Don't even bother trying to change because you're just going to run into roadblocks all the time. A part of you believes that, you know what, you're a know-it-all, you know everything, and you haven't fully dedicated yourself to change, you haven't made that decision, you haven't started over, and you're not a student. You're going to continue being a sufferer, okay? And then after being a sufferer, uh, after being a sufferer and then a student, you become a teacher. When you're a teacher, now you've developed self-mastery, okay? You've developed self-mastery over a number of things. Number one, your thoughts, right? Because I could have a negative thought, and then replace it with a positive thought instantly. And therefore, I can start to change the angle in which I see something, right? If I'm talking to you and, and I don't like your hair, right? And then all of a sudden, I start focusing on a different aspect of you, a different angle. I love the sweater because blue is my favorite color. Notice how when I focus on a different angle, right? My thoughts start to change. I start to feel better. But we're so focused on the wrong thing, right, that we keep feeling bad all the time. And because feeling bad is so familiar in today's world, we tend to hold on to it. Because anything that's unfamiliar, your mind will have a very difficult time changing. So self-mastery is thoughts, but self-mastery is also words. What sort of words do you hear people say in today's world? Well, you know, I'll never do that. That's not me. That's too difficult. You know, my parents never did it. I'll never do it. Listen to the words that people say and then look at their their life. You'll notice that there's a, a, a connection there, a huge connection. Change the words, change the reality, change the life. Right. So at self mastery, not only are you you're more in control of your thought patterns, you're in control of your words. And now you're in control of your emotions and actions. Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to go to the pub instead of going to the pub. I'm going to go to seminar. Right. Instead of grabbing the bag of chips, I'm going to start eating seaweed and which is something I did, which was interesting. It kind of just, you know, replaced the, the salt that I really needed because uh, my adrenals were fatigued because of all that anxiety. But you can see how you can't delete something. You can't stop smoking. You can only replace smoking. You can't stop doing a behavior. You can only replace a behavior because a part of you will always want to go back to whatever that feeling is, okay, that you get from smoking. 
or being with those toxic people. So if I'm going to leave a toxic friend, I have to re replace that friend with somebody else. I have to put myself in environments that are the type of people that I want to hang around and the person that I want to become, right? And a lot of people try to quit smoking. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to put a patch on, that sort of stuff. My family, you know, 99% of my family smokes, right? I'm the 1%. I'm the <laughs> And, uh, and when it comes to this, it's like, you know, Dennis, I tried to smoke. I tried to quit smoking and this and that. Well, what does smoking give you as a feeling? Well, it makes me feel joyful. It makes me feel relaxed. It makes me feel, you know, more in touch with other people. It makes me feel cool. Okay. Well, what other thing can you do that will give you that significance and give you that connection to people and give you that cool feeling? What else can you do? Well, I can try yoga. Okay. Well, as soon as you say, I'm going to try yoga. Okay. That's a recipe for failing. So I'm going to commit to yoga is a completely different word pattern. Right? So then does yoga make you feel cool? Yeah, it sort of does. Does it connect you with other people? Yeah. Does it make you feel good? Yeah. Okay, great. Now you've replaced it. Now you're actually going to long-term quit smoking, right? You see how we're, see how we're working with this, right? But then mo and most times, Dennis, it would be most people replace this, the cigarette with food. So obviously that's a another uh, dangerous, uh, it's probably not as life threatening, but in the long run it could be. So it's, it's, it's like you say, you're replacing something. You can never get rid of it entirely. You know what? The truth is, is that with every habit that somebody knows is hurting them, but they feel the need to do, you know, when I work with people that say, Dennis, you know, um, I'm overweight. I want you to help me lose more weight. It's not about the weight, right? It's not about the weight. It's about the emotional um, bankruptcy that you're under and the emotional patterns that you're continuously running and the traumas from your life that you haven't dealt with that's leading you to gain weight, okay? It, it's, it's never about the weight issue. It's never about the smoking. The smoking is a cover-up for something else. The gaining weight is body armor for something else, right? It's always that way, right? So every time I have someone that says, you know, I want to lose weight, Dennis. The first thing I ask them is, what happened between the ages of 0 and 10? Okay. Between the ages of 0 and 10, when you were the most neuroplastic, the most suggestible, you were a sponge, you accepted everything. Your dad did something, you did it. Your mom thought something, you thought it. Right? What happened back then? Well, this, this, and this happened. Okay. Well, you take care of that stuff. All of a sudden, the need to eat more disappears. But so many people in today's world come up with these, these problems that they have that aren't even the root of, of what they're dealing with. I want to lose weight. I want to quit smoking. I want to, you know, I want to exercise more, this and that. Well, there are things in your life that you haven't dealt with that you need to deal with first. Okay, then go back and see what you feel about what you've been doing. But then, Dennis, does that not come back to the, what we were talking about earlier? We're looking at 
obviously the results and obviously all those uh, com- comparing and con- contrasting mm. with what we term perfection in the media, social media, as opposed to, as you talked about there, is looking at what the underlying issue is. And obviously that is a process. Mm-hmm. Huge process. Huge process. And processes equal pain in today's world, right? And, you know, in this podcast episode that we're doing, I'm coming from a place of no sugarcoating, you noticed? I mean, there is no real, and that's basically how I'm now hardwired to be because I really, and you as well probably, don't have patience for people that sugarcoat a situation. You know, I'll have people come up to me and say, I want change, this and that, you know. And then I ask them, and we have an incredible session. And then they go about their lives, and I ask them, well, what did you do to maintain this change? Well, not a whole lot, right? And then I'm going, well, what's really going on here, right? So we have to understand that, you know, just because we're discussing this, I'm I'm never going to be taking any of the pain away from what people are experiencing today because there's so much pain in the world, you know, There's pain everywhere. Um, And we have to understand that this pain was a cause of something. This pain is a cause of some way of thinking about something. This pain is a result of something else, okay? Cause and effect. So all we have to do, okay, is first create the mindset because a lot of people are looking for that quick fix. They're looking for that pill. They're looking for that technique, that one chapter in the book that's going to eliminate all their problems. And then they go, my God, that's nice. That's great. I'm going to apply that. And then they start to feel better. Next thing you know, their unconscious mind starts to go, well, hey, don't don't forget about this. You haven't dealt with this root of the problem yet. And then you start to feel crap again right? And then you start to go, well, that didn't work. So we have to develop the proper mindset as far as how am I going to create change? And until you have a vision, you cannot create a strategy. Okay. You have to first create a vision for what you want, how you want to feel the different aspects of your life. And then you can start to create a strategy for how to get there. Right. We have to get away from the advertising, the marketing, the the social media, the messages out there that say you can achieve anything in a moment, okay? You can have anything you want. You want that red shirt? Go buy it. It's on sale at Zara or whatever it is. You want that pair of shoes? Great. The Yeezy's perfect. Go to Foot Locker, right? Oh, we got a problem. We want something. We can have it right away. And then with anxiety, it's the same situation. I got anxiety. It's, it's severe right now. What do we do? Well, we got two options. We can either commit to three months and have long lasting change, or we can go and take a pill. Okay. And feel good temporarily, but then have to up the dose of the pill over and over again so that our body continues to react the same way it did in the beginning and then open up a whole new can of worms that you didn't even have before. And therefore, you're in a situation where things get really complicated, right? So the idea now is to create the mindset, the long-term approach. You want to play the long game, 
when, as far as anxiety, you want to play the long game as far as achieving what you want to achieve, you know, but you want to start somewhere, right? You have to start somewhere. And that somewhere is the DVNF is to be dissatisfied is to create so much pain with how your life is right now and what you're capable of and then creating the vision and then taking the action every morning first thing, right? When you do this, you, you got a system. And is it going to work in a week? No, it's not going to work in a week. How long have you practiced being pessimistic? How long have you practiced being anxiety, right? Or how long have you practiced doing things the wrong way? Well, Dennis, I practiced for 10 years. Well, what do you expect, right? But let, let me ask you this question, Dennis, then. Obviously, my family is very much pessimistic, but if I use myself as the example, I might look at it as, say, for example, uh, I'm doing this placement for four weeks, but I have that pessimism that, okay, I may not get the job, but I'm looking at it in the grand scheme of things that it's because I'm preparing myself for, um, you could say that negative thought process that may occur. Okay, I may still get the job anyway. But as opposed to somebody saying, oh, I'm doing a wonderful job. Oh, by the way, you're not going to get the job. And obviously, what anxiety that comes from. Do you think um, one is better than the other or is they're virtually the same? So the approach that you take towards something and then, okay, so the approach that you take towards something, um, you know, like we said, there has to be a, a you know, with NLP, there's this idea of, um, of pairings. There's this idea of associations. Um, and also there's this idea of seeing things from a whole new angle. What we need, the, the biggest problem with, let's say, anticipation anxiety, I'm not going to get the job, um, you know, and, and beating yourself up over this is you're, you're basically focusing on something so much that's creating a certain energy within you. And next thing you know, the truth is, is that whether you, when you accept a suggestion, it's more likely that the next suggestion will be accepted as well. Okay. And the next suggestion will be accepted as well and so on and so on and so on. So when we put into our minds the idea that, you know, uh, it's going to be difficult for me to get the job, I don't have the skills, whatever it is, then you have another suggestion that says, oh my God, I, I'm being interviewed by somebody that, you know, that is very intimidating. Then you start to add on that. And then you start to add on the fact that, oh my God, there's 50 other people that's doing the interview. Next thing you know, accepting, accepting suggestion after suggestion. Um, the idea now is to focus on what you're going to gain, okay, through the process and after you're done the process. So notice that when I start to focus on a different aspect of that experience, I start to feel differently. Anxiety and excitement are identical as far as feelings go. I could be incredibly excited about something and incredibly anxious about something bad happening to me, and the sensations and the feelings are identical. Okay, so if I can be anxious about something, I can find a way to tweak that and to focus on a different aspect of what it is I'm being anxious of, 
Therefore, I can start to be excited about it in the moment, right away. So I have an interview. Great. Another opportunity for me, myself, to, to share my skills that I've been learning. All this personal development, I've got an opportunity now to present myself in a way where I can really create some long-term growth for myself. Great. And you know what? Oh, wow, that interview is in a, in, a, in a certain area of the city that I really love. You know what? After the interview, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go take a stroll, and it's going to be super fun. I'm going to go to the bakery. I'm going to go here, and I'm going to talk to my old friend over here. Notice that when I focus on what's going to happen in the experience and after the experience, what it's going to give me in return. If I, when I do it, when I do a great job, I'm going to get this job, you know, and how is it going to contribute to changing my life and my family's life? Now I'm turning anxiety into excitement. Okay. Now I'm excited about the experience. And when you start to program and condition yourself in this way, you start to see the good in everything. I, for instance, I went, you know, I went bonkers for a bit. I went, I knew that coffee was the very thing that triggered more anxiety within me. And I was scared of sensations and symptoms and judgments of people. So during my recovery, I said, I'm going to drink five cups of coffee today, right? Throughout the entire day. So there was the morning, one cup of coffee and so on and so on until the evening. And I was anxious for the entire day, okay? But then I said, you know what? Every anxious moment is an opportunity for me to practice a different approach. So I was anxious. But then I turned anxiety into excitement by thinking about, my God, I'm going to go see my mom later. That's going to be really exciting, right? And then, you know what? I'm so excited for the direction my life is going. You know, I can't wait to get married in six months or whatever then I started focusing on that. And when I focused on a, something that created excitement within me, I accepted the feelings that came with, that, with that, um, that programming that I was under. So those five cups of coffee, for me, bring it on. Anxiety, I'm not scared. I now just have to focus on a different aspect of what it is I'm going to go into. Right? And this is powerful. This is something that your listeners, my listeners can start to work on today. But you said that withdrawal from coffee, you could say it from a different way because obviously that arousal level is going to be lower and that's going to bring anxiety in itself because mm. your body's used to having that caffeine at a certain level. So you're going to be, mm. oh, it's like withdrawal symptoms from that and that obviously brings um, problems in itself. Good, totally. Now, my, my taking action and drinking that coffee was for me to basically think about defying my fears. That's what it was. I had a fear of symptoms. I had a fear of what people would think. And since I created that anxiousness within me, and then I placed myself in environments that also created some anxiousness, I understood after some time that my fight or flight response wasn't going to be tamed, okay, until I placed myself in anxious situations. I, you know, when I was feeling good, I was feeling good. But then all of a sudden, a memory, a crappy memory from the age 8, 9, 10, 12, whatever popped up. 
And all I tried to do was try to get rid of that memory rather than trying to deal with it. And that's how most people go about their lives. They don't want to think about the negatives. They don't want to think about the traumas because it's too painful to go there. And therefore, they keep reliving it over and over and over again. So my coffee thing, action that I took that day and drinking five cups of coffee was for me to say, hey, amygdala, hey, fight or flight response, guess what? We have nothing to fear, right? We can be anxious. We can go into the grocery store or the shopping mall, or I can talk to that person that I really don't like and causes me anxiety, and I can handle it perfectly fine as long as I focus on different aspects of that experience. But that, but then also, Dennis, we alluded to this. You've got to take the good with the bad as well. It's, you can't have everything obviously go well in life because that's not realistic. But on the flip side of it, everything is not bad because if you probably look at, um, and have this outlook on life, somebody's somewhere in the world is going to be in a similar situation, if not worse. So mm-hmm. it's probably that, that, as we've touched upon, it's been somewhere in between. Totally. You know what? The truth is, is that in my world, you know, when I work with people, there's no such thing as a bad behavior. There really is no such thing as a bad behavior because every behavior is trying to, you're trying to gain something from every behavior. Someone who smokes is trying to gain something from that smoking. Okay. Someone who's creating anger, you know, you can use that anger in a different way and say, you know what? It's fine. But whatever you're getting caught up in behaviorally, there's a time and place for it. But we have to understand that we can't look at a bad behavior and and just judge it as being a bad behavior because we're trying to gain some kind of human need through that behavior. Okay. That's the truth because you could look at someone and say, you know what, that's a bad person. That's a really bad person. But the truth is, is that that person, okay, by what that person's doing, they are gaining something. They are feeling something. They are in their minds achieving something. They are feeling significant. They are gaining love and connection from people. You know, when someone holds a gun up at somebody's head, okay, and and has been disregarded his entire life, there's a certain thing that he's trying to gain from that activity, that behavior. He's trying to gain significance, right? You'll see it in cartoons all the time where there's someone that's been disregarded, not listened to for so long, and then all of a sudden something happens and they say, you know what, I'm going to gain significance in this way. People are going to start listening to me. And I have a voice, whatever it is. Um, So we can't disregard the behavior and say, hey, stop doing that. What we have to do is say, what is that behavior giving somebody? Okay, what is it making them feel? And how can they gain this in a more positive, productive way? Right? The smoking, same thing. The gaining weight, the food, you know, the toxic people, you know, the toxic world that they live in whatever it may be, whatever behavior that they're, they're going through and they're partaking in, there's something that that behavior gives them. What else can you do that will give you the same feelings, that will help you move forward but in a more productive way where you'll live longer, 
where you'll be healthier, where you'll be emotionally more stable, right? But doesn't it come back to what people perceive as being bad? Obviously, it's an assumption and in, in, um, also what I want. Uh, in, oh, I can't think of the word, but it's it's you are putting how you perceive something onto somebody and like you said it might not always be the case as to why they're doing it it's very much okay it isn't the first impression of somebody which is very very human humanistic of us that's the first thing we take of somebody it'd be it good bad or indifferent mm-hmm. that's kind of our first inkling of okay that's what the person's like all the time which is it's probably not the best way of going about things you should in theory give somebody a second chance but in most cases that doesn't occur Great point. Great point. Right. Because we live in such a, a judgmental world. You know, we, we judge people by what they say. We judge people by what they do. And then we attach labels to them. They are this, this person is panic disorder. This person is anxiety disorder. This person is GAD, you know, and next thing you know, these people live with these labels for their entire lives because now it's an identity. Now it's a part of them, right? When you label somebody, the way you react to that person in the future and what you think about that person will be based around that label. Someone who's a social butterfly, you know, you'll think about that person in a certain way all the time. Um, someone who is, who you see as being overweight, you'll attach whatever overweight means to you to that person. So they're sluggish, they're lazy, they're this, they're that. When in fact, it could be the total opposite of the truth, Right. So we have to be really careful with these judgments we place on people because it doesn't help the person. It doesn't help you. It limits the way you see people in the world. It limits the way you see yourself. And through this process, the only person you're really hurting is you. If we come from a place of being you know, more flexible and saying, well, it's just something that they're doing. It's not who they are. Okay, now it's an activity, it's not an identity, right? Now it's different. Now it's like, oh, it's fine, they are fine. And then you start to grow relationships with that person, whereas before you probably said, I don't hang around people that are anxious. I don't hang around people that are depressed. I don't hang around people that, are, that make a certain amount of money. You know, rich people are snobs, you know, this sort of thing. And so when we put up those blind spots, it tends to really affect us, right? But when we come from a place of being more open-minded and say, oh, it's just something that they said or something that they did, then that person begins to become more flexible in their thinking, right? And this is, this is huge what you bring up because we're always judging. We're always judging. Our minds are, you know, the filters in our minds always delete information, distort information, and generalize information. So with this, we create our reality in our world. We have to be careful what we delete. We have to be careful how we modify information that we're getting because it's causing us more pain and more anxiety. Right? Well, I think I think it goes probably even a step further than that, though, because I think society very much wants to put people in boxes. Totally. Absolutely. You know, you, 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 you nailed it, right? It, uh, people are in boxes. It's like, 
you know, we tend to think of ourselves as our name, you know, Dennis Simsek, you know, it's like, you know, and everything that went along with that throughout the growing up years, I am, when in fact, we're so much more than that. You know, we live in a world where the system and society tells us that we can't do and can't shoot for our dreams, right? We can't shoot for our goals and this sort of stuff because that's only for the people that are special, right? That's not for you. And then what starts to happen is we start to talk ourselves out of things. But you're absolutely right where people are placed in boxes today. You know, it's, I, what do you do for a living? I am an accountant. Okay. Well, that whole I am is now because you see yourself as an accountant, everything that you do every single day will be based around I am an accountant. You'll start to meet only accountant friends. You'll start to just, you know, focus, you'll, you'll focus on numbers all the time rather than focusing on maybe other things. Someone who says, I am anxiety. I am generalized anxiety. I have this. Um, I am panic disorder. I have panic attacks, this sort of thing. When you start to create these types of identity statements for yourself, you create blind spots to anything that goes against that identity. So someone who's anxious will never walk down the street and see those people beside them that are hugging and kissing, that are in fact, you know, living more calmly or relaxed. They'll never see the poster on the side that says, you know, that gives the person a sense of calmness. You, have you meditated today? They won't pinpoint that. Your unconscious mind won't pay attention to that. But if you see yourself as an anxious person, the stuff you will pay attention to is, have you got your, 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 your heart checked lately? You know, you're going to see that poster, you know, have bills. Have you paid your bills lately? You're going to do that because these are related to the way you see yourself, right? And this is not conscious. Remember that what we said, you know, something, you don't have to consciously be aware of something in order for it to affect you. Right. And this is a dangerous world we're living in. That's why it's so important that we take care of a couple of things. Number one, our beliefs and values. What are our values? What do we believe? We have to go in deep and say, you know what? Are these beliefs helping me about someone or something about my life? Do I need to change my life's metaphor? Do I have to look at life differently? Life is now an exciting roller coaster ride. When I think of life like this, all of a sudden, it's topsy-turvy, and I'm allowed mistakes, right? Then I have to go in and start to shift my identity. Going from a football player to a basketball player is not easy, right? But it is possible. Um, so we have to understand that whole process. And my last question for you, Dennis, before we wrap up the show if you had to summarize this entire episode that we've just done into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Oh, this is a good one. Um, change, I would say, change the way you see yourself and you'll change your reality. Because until you change the way you see yourself and change the internal processes that you're going through, you're never going to get that car that you want. You're never going to build that relationship that you want. 
Too many people today are trying to change their external, okay, rather than changing their internal. How, what mindset do you go into interviews? How do you wake up in the morning? Do you wake up with positive mental expectancy or do you wake up thinking, you know what, today's going to be just like yesterday? So change the way you see yourself and you'll change your reality in the long run. I love I love that quote. So once again, Dennis, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thank you, my friend. Truly honored. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.